Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from alpha to, omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to part two of the TSSI series. Today is Saturday, the 18th of August, and we are continuing with our study of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marx's Capital. I am joined in this noble pursuit by my fellow podcasters from Swampside Chats, Symptomatic Redness in Fluored Sack, and Alex, a listener of From Alpha to Omega. This show was originally broadcast as a Google Hangout live on YouTube. I would recommend, if you are interested in the content, to perhaps try to watch it on YouTube, as there are some tables from the book that we'll be looking at in detail, and you'll be able to see them on the YouTube video. You could also follow it easily if you had the book itself handy, or failing that, most of the time, just listening to our sweet dulce tones will suffice. If you are listening on YouTube, please smash that like and subscribe button. Anyway, to the discussion. Hello and welcome to part two of Refuting Marx's Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI. We have Lexi. Hi. We have uh, Emmanuel. Oh. We've got Alex. Hi, how's it going? We've got Rosa. Hello. And we have, we have Emmanuel. Uh, not Emmanuel, you were here already. Um, we've got uh, Amog, it will be joining us later, I think. So we've got two new participants here today. Um, we've got Alex, do you want to introduce yourself a bit before we start? I know you introduced yeah. last week, but we didn't. I didn't actually get you to say anything. Yeah, no, not a problem, Tom. Um, yeah, so I'm just a long-time listener from Alpha to Omega, uh, more recently as Swampside, just looking to learn more about Marx, and um, Kleiman's been on my, my radar for a while, so I thought this would be a good... Uh, good opportunity to, to to go through the text. So, what time is it in Sydney, Australia? Um, it is now two thirty a.m. Oh my God, oh, you shit. are you are a brave soul. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and we got Rosa as well. Rosa, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I guess I'm <laughs> like from Swampside. I do it with Lexi, just Represent. a podcast. And I've actually had this book for a while, uh, Reclaiming Marx's Capital. My grandfather got it for me before he like died relatively recently. And I never really got a chance to finish it. So this is my chance to really finish it. <sighs> yeah. I can't imagine having a grandfather buy me an Andrew Kleiman book. <laughs> Sounds sounds like a cool grandpa. Oh yeah, he was complaining about it the entire time. He was like, oh, he's got, "Yeah, it's having me getting commie books for you, God." Like, he wasn't complaining on it about a theory, a theoretical level. He wasn't a a, a simultaneous, was he? <laughs> Another bad joke from me. Okay, well. <laughs> Damn orthodox Marxist value theorists. They just yeah. can't accept Ocasio theorem. Another insensitive joke from Tom O'Brien. Now, well, well, why don't we start back to where... Oh, before we start with this, going into the more new juicy stuff, we have a couple of 
um, errors or issues from last week that we should probably um, we're probably going to just talk a quick bit through. We had a comment on the uh, episode saying that we had made an error, which was correct. I miss uh, defined fixed capital as the part of capital that was uh, physically kind of strapped down like buildings and machinery, while in actuality, it's the part of capital that doesn't transfer all of its value in the one go in the one production period. So the idea there might be a milkman's truck, uh, maybe over 10 years, the truck will break down. And over that 10 years, it'll transfer a small bit of value to each pint of milk. But it's fixed capital, even though it's able to drive around. Okay, yep. so that was a kind of a basic error I made there. Um, another interesting thing I think that's worth mentioning is, Lexi, you talked a little bit how you thought that the book was somehow a, a kind of a mashing of Say's Law into Marxism that a lot of the simultaneous um, kind of what, in Kleiman's terms, um, Marxism or post-Marxian or Marxian stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was my attempt to figure out how, like, to try to find a rhyming incident from the history of economics that could, you know, give me a lay of the land to grapple with how everyone could be wrong. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it have to be something like this, that in the maths, there's something like a says law. That's actually a controversial ideological assumption. Um, but well, yeah, I was kind of skeptical. I was a bit skeptical of whether you were right or not. It struck me initially that you were right. And then when I thought about it, I thought you were wrong. So I decided to, to fire a question to Andrew about it. And I'll just read out what he said here. He said, um, he says, the models seem to be ultimately derived from Valras's general equilibrium framework. And he basically had a counterpart to Say's law, known as Valras's law. Um, but then he goes on to say that everything is, but everything is shrouded in confusion owing to different and incompatible uses of the term Say's law. He mm. says, and then he says the use of simultaneous valuation in Straffianism and Marxian, you know, inverted commas, economics is often limited to production slash supply. So there's no necessary link to any conservation principle regarding supply and demand. So I think he's kind of saying maybe, uh, but I think you're kind of on the right track. It's the application of general equilibrium framework to Marx's uh, value theory, which to me is just, um, you know, a kind of a travesty because they seem to be diametrically opposed as one is, you know, a motion of sequence in time and the other is one of these general equilibrium type things. Yeah, you know, on paper, and I, I, I'm going to say this a lot. I'm going to say this a lot. I'm like a, I'm like a methodological Jainist. I always think that there's going to be some kind of nuggets of truth in what everybody's doing. And, and like a pluralist to some degree, like at, at the end of the day, somebody's right, more right than others. But like, I wonder, you know, what the walruses of the world, walruses of the world, <laughs> I should say, are, are getting out of this besides the ideological, you know, justification, if there's really anything else there. Yeah, um, I can't see any more in it. I think you, I think you definitely hit on to something there with your... Uh, tying it to say's law or Valras's law, which are very similar. I had a look up at them during the week and 
you know, they're quite similar. Um, so I think you've definitely hit something there. The third bit, the last bit then that I thought we could talk about was where I certainly came away from uh, the discussion a little bit confused about when we talked about um, where Andrew made this kind of distinct point, point about the definition of what um, value is. I'm just trying to find it here in the text. Um, let's see here now. In the beginning, where... Does anybody know whereabouts what whereabouts he says? It's yeah, it's definitely earlier in the chapter. Let me go through. Okay. Let me see. Um right on the end of uh page twenty-one. Uh, okay. Okay, yeah. Two two point one point two determination of value by labor time. Okay, yes. So where the there. There we go. Okay, yeah. So this is the bit I'll highlight it here now. Um, Marx's theory that a, a commodity's value has is determined by the amount of labor time needed to to produce it is often being construed as a definition. So I quizzed up Andrew on this because it seemed like to me that that was quite definitional, that that was quite axiomatic about the whole theory. But what what he said was that he thought that value that there that value was really defined implicitly in Marx's work as the social non-material substance that is common to all commodities. So this is the idea the so that's what he says is he thinks is the is the definition of value. This idea that all commodities have got this that thing that's in, in common between them all that allows them to exchange. That's the definition of of value. Oh, um, no them to be exchanged but okay that, um, common yeah okay i've said that i've said that incorrectly yeah well okay i i think this so i think the issue here is that there's that third thing argument that you're that i think andrew and you are getting at is this like you know there are ratios between you know let's say abstractly you know if you're if you're trading you know 10 yards of linen for a bale of wheat or whatever, you know, there's, there's an implicit metric of comparison there. And so there must be like, it seems like he says in the book, logically, there must be a third thing that allows you to, to quantify like the units of difference there between the two things in the ratio. Um, I think what's maybe bringing about some confusion is that, Logically speaking, I don't know if this actually holds, you know, you could in theory just do a series of ratios. You wouldn't necessarily need that. However, in real life, if, if this is the real abstraction, if there are things being compared iteratively over and over again, frequently, you know, this is something that emerges. It's an emergent property. I think that's the best way I can get at it is that um, th the reason that he doesn't believe that this is an axiom is because it's an emergent property of the system. And, and, and well, if you, and if you yeah. take the third thing argument literally, logically, then it's, then it's not an axiom because it's a conclusion, you know. Um, exactly. But, but right. I, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if the argument logically processes. However, I do think the, the real abstraction is happening. Can I um, just quickly inter interject something uh, here because I'm I'm super into the whole third thing argument. Uh, yeah. 
Um, cool. So one thing that would perhaps would help the listeners uh, getting through this is um, uh, Kleiman has written an article, uh, which is perhaps the best named article I know of, which is um, the for, uh, fourth thing on the third thing, the. Um, <laughs> Website uh, and it goes through the the third thing argument uh, I think quite convincingly. If but but the Kleinman's response here is is completely true. Um, Marx does not in the actual text of Capital say that you know value is by definition labor. Rather, he goes through this uh, elaborate um, argumentative process where he just as you said, Lexi, he. Um, he uh, uh, goes to reality, objective reality, um, and uh, sees that, you know, uh, in the marketplace, uh, 10 t-shirts uh, exchange for one shoe. And wherever we find, you know, th so that means that whatever these, these uh, you know, one t-shirt has therefore a tenth of something that the shoe has. Um, if they didn't share a common substance, then they couldn't be uh, converted into each other, and etc. And then he sort of so he sort of tries to get at what could this third sub substance be. It's sort of like an energy argument, right? So if if we're going to say that you know uh, a, a ten uh, a, a two hour workout equals these and these many calories, well, how does it? How how can that be, right? How how could it be that you know, uh, 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 a protein bar, a ten minute, an hour of workout, and uh, the heat required to uh, heat up these and these many gallons of water? How come they're they're all sort of speaking the same language? Well, it's because they're all equal uh, in terms of a third thing, namely energy and energy can take all of these different forms, um, et cetera. So that's, that's sort of the, the third, the third thing argument and right. it really matters because if the third, my, my position, and I think Kleiman's position too, is that if the third thing argument falls, the entirety of Marx's theory falls. Um, well, hmm. like in that energy example though, it's, it's not a matter of logic that there's a third thing. It's just a, a, a fact about the emergent system, right? The, the fact that that's happening in, in energy like suggests that in the system it's there. I think, I don't wanna get too hung up on, on the abstract logic here because I feel like when people are making fun of this argument saying, well, this doesn't work, right? They're, they're like, there doesn't need to be a third thing. The third thing is number. You know, like they're thinking very abstractly. They're thinking very logically. And to their credit, or you know, they are taking Marx at his word. Marx seems to believe he's just processing a lot, a purely logical argument. Or and like I said before, I don't know if it works like that. But I do think when you're talking about an emergent system, it does suggest that there is a common unit. Okay. What do we? Not to be overly complicated. Hi, this is Varn from SR. Hey. What's hey, up, Derek. That's um, symptomatic readiness for those who don't know. Yeah, um, I'm rep I'm representing um, the SR contingent today since um, somebody couldn't make it, um, and I just happen to be around and I've read this book. Um, what do we mean, oh, Lexi? What do we mean by logics here? Because Marx isn't using a standard analytic 
um, notion of, of logic. I mean, that's he's a, operating with a Hegelian has, assumptions, which actually as a process does will only define like components, anything like an like axiomatically, it describes everything else. That's how it works. Yeah, no, th that's true. I'm I'm um, using logic imperialistically to just mean like um, analytical, mathematical, you know, binary logic, like the the kind that a lawyer would use to to try to um, you know get get through the bar or the LSAT. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's well, it's, it's you know the idea of theorem, you know, of, of definition, theorem, theorem, corollary or corollary. You know, the kind of mathematical way. Yeah, that's how I was using it with, with Andrew, and that's what he said back anyway. Well, and th th that's why the reason I say this is because I think that Andrew and Andrew, I think, believes that it it, it goes through using that standard of logic, not the not the uh, Hegelian like unfolding standard of logic, which is what I was trying to get at by talking about the real abstraction. I'm gonna I'm going to say that I don't think now. Again, I'm speaking about someone who doesn't talk to me anymore, but um, that I don't think Andrew sees a difference between the science of logic and mathematical logic, because he also thinks to understand Marx, you must understand the science of logic. I mean, he's, he's, he said you could approach a text without it, but it really clarifies. So, but Hegel thinks of that mathematical formal logic that I was calling logic as you know, a, like a smaller part of a greater project uh, as like a square within the rectangles. Right. And he also dismissed the, the dialectical study of math as not dialectical enough. I mean, I, 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 I get that. Hegel? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But anyway. Simon's position on the third thing argument, just read his article on it. It's, it's on his website. We can, we can link to it. Uh, he is, he is, not doing some sort of weird Hegelian stuff, uh, metaphysical nonsense. He uh, he does run with the same kind of uh, idea of logic as uh, as Tom does, as I do, as as Lexi's uh, um, uh, bar exam lawyer lawyer does. Um, it's uh, it, it's 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 really a, a simple Aristotelian argument. Uh, and so there's no weird Hegelian stuff going on. Well, we should take a look at that and uh, perhaps continue our yeah. uh, our discussion on this uh, uh, another time. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to cut it down, but I, it was just like something that I had difficulty was wondering about why exactly he was saying that and whether I agree with it at the time. But um, I think everybody else got it more than I did. But I think I, I have it now. I think, though, yeah, you know. I don't know too much about Hegel's uh, science of logic, so I, I can't really comment. But I think we should probably move on, unless Derek, you think we're cutting you short? No, you're not cutting me short. I, I just, I think, I think honestly, there is there is uh, some hyper slipperiness in the way we're using the term logic, and it's actually crucial to Kleiman's argument. And I've always suspected that there's a shift that, that there's some kind of shift going on there because lawyers logic isn't logic it's not actually an absolute proof it's an informal thing mathematical logic isn't the same thing either um and well, i'm talking about the kind of like i'm not talking about just pragmatics in the lsat right i'm talking about like well if you take mathematical logic it is the formalization of the 
Frege, Russell, Wittgenstein tradition, right? To be more specific. But, but that isn't a tradition. There's, it, not it a isn't? there's not a coherent answer to that tr tradition in logics. Like if you study, and you and I both study analytical philosophy, yes. we both know there's not actually one answer to that tradition. So, oh, oh, no, no, no. I Yes, I understand what you're saying. But like Euclidean geometry, there is a dominant like... There is a dominant way that people use this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there is I get a, it. a very, a very obvious, big, specific one that people use most of the time, and that's the one I was trying to get at by saying. And you're right. The LSAT lawyer is being a bit more pragmatic than uh, than doing a mathematical logic class, but I think. In comparison to Hegelian logic, those things are close enough. I mean, I don't think we can answer this for this for this. Uh question right now and I'm coming in, you know, having read the book, but I was not part of the last conversation. So I'm going to end it off. But my one point is Kleiman's main argument to me was that logically also using the, the, um, the principle of charity, if something is logically consistent, then you, you must accept that it's, that it is possible, you know? Um, but if we're playing with different notions of logic, the notion of consistency actually becomes a real problem. Um, I don't think we're. I don't think any of this is about playing with different ideas of logic. I think yeah. they're all operating on exactly the same type of logic, which is the one that people associate normally with just normal mathematical theorem proof type logic. Well, you then know, we'll have to read the third thing paper and see if it actually holds because I don't know that it. I, I I have never I have never actually seen how you could logically square that circle. Yeah, like, honestly, oh, I, I don't I, I don't think it matters if if the third thing argument logically holds because I think it describes something real. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say is that like I think that what he why he's saying this specifically here is for some uh, reason that, for some argument that I'm not aware of to do with value form, and he's making it quite explicit what he thinks are the definitions and and i think that's why he's doing it so here's, you know. here's just just you know my final my fifth thing on the fourth thing on the third thing comma the oh, God. Here, here's here's Kleiman in the introduction to uh to the paper that i think will sort of uh clarify what what is meant by logic he says in contrast to both these views i regard marx this argument as a sound deductive argument in which the intrinsic values is derived more than a couple of meaning means of a step-by-step -step explication of the logical structure of the first paragraph of the third thing argument. So there you go. So it so it is it, it is deductive Aristotelian logic. Got it. We can move on. Okay. Okay. Let's 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 start from where we left off last week, and uh, hopefully we haven't totally made everybody's head explode with that discussion. <laughs> um, now, uh, Lexi, I said before we started that you could start this because I couldn't remember what it was. So we're on chapter two point one point seven now, and it's the distinctions between value and price. Yeah. I th uh, this is a this is a this is where Andrew starts. Um, introducing one of his most important uh, concepts is this idea of a quantitative difference, a potential quantitative difference between um, price and value. Um, but the first thing he wants to get out of the way is that, look, there's another distinction here, is that we can measure value not only in the money price, 
but in labor time, you know, and um, <clears throat> in order to compare like to like, in order to compare uh, labor times to uh, money prices, there needs to be some kind of conversion factor, which we'll get into. Um, but what he wants to say in particular is that these two distinctions, this value measure and the potential quantitative differences between price and value, um, these things have are nothing to do with each other. These are these distinctions are not the same. <clears throat> and the reason why he wants to say that is because he he thinks price and value are a single system. And so, it, like in this single system, he still believes, of course, that you can articulate it as price or or as or money price or as as labor time. Um, he makes an additional kind of uh, distinction within quantitative difference where um, for a firm or industry's output, value is the sum of value produced and price is the sum of value received. And then within a single commodity, value is the commodity's actual value determined by labor time. And then the price is the sum of money that commodity's owner can sell for it. So that's that's a quantitative, a potential quantitative difference between price and value um, that he says has has nothing to do with the difference in measuring labor time and money price as different, you know, units of measurement. Does anybody have any issues with what is said there? No. Anybody? Alex, what do you make of that? No, I think that's, that's pretty solid. Um, yeah, so my understanding is that values, the labor hours embodied in a commodity, prices the money that uh, the capitalist receives in exchange for the good. So, yeah, just I think um, Lexi did a good job uh, on that part there. Yeah, one, one thing I'd like to say as well is one thing that Lexi was saying there was about the the single system versus the dual system. When we get later on into it, that can sound all airy fairy to people when they, they, they hear these things, but it's really just a way of writing the exact same. It's like you can write in labor time and you can write in prices the yeah. what happened in production and the outputs. And the next thing we're going to do, see here, is called the melt. And that's how we're going to be able to convert from labor time into a into from labor time into prices so um when it comes to the the melt that's there's a, some different ways of calculating it but let me just get here what andrew just said to me was uh well um where is my internet gone here we go um so um Let's see, do we have stuff here in the melt? The economy-wide ratio of total money price of output to total labor time value of output. Okay, so the melt is an average of mm. money to labor time. Okay, now, does anybody want to talk about this? I, um, what actually, does anybody want to talk any more about this? Uh, certainly with respect to what other schools have seemed to have problems with it um okay well, well some people some of the other schools have like uh so when we get later on they seem to have problems with the this idea of the monetary expression of labor time that it's uh it's always a function of the previous 
monetary expression of labor time. Actually, let's let's not get into that. Well, do people have any any problems with the with the actual idea of 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 a melt? Do people think it's a reasonable scientific measure? Um, well, when I look at the the footnote um, for two uh, one eight. Uh, he says it's the reciprocal of the amount of labor a unit of money commands. So it's sort of the how much money is able to uh, command labor. And I, to me, that just makes sense at a, at a kind of common sense level. But I, I'm not really um, across all the debates. We'll get we'll get to them much later, I think, when we get down to some of the nitty gritty. But um, to me, it seems like a very reasonable scientific measure. Not even a it's more an accountant measure, really. It's the number of hours worked in an economy divided yeah. by the price of the economy. And and, and as we'll see later, total prices uh, in the aggregate are going to equal total labor hours in the aggregate. No, not total. Um, total. Or to total values. Total, sorry, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. T total prices equals total value. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? I remember when Lexi was talking to me about this before. Lexi, you thought that that this seems like it's a very um, accounted, empirical, you know, empirically provable, but you suspected mm -hmm. that it's actually much harder to pin down than it seems. Would you go back into why you thought that? Because this is actually how I read Marx kind of intuitively and when i read this i was like oh i finally have a way to understand how to articulate that but um will you go into that a little bit lexi sure yeah i don't think i would have said empirically but I th it, it rationally makes sense right like this you know it's this stands to reason that if you can if if value the substance of value is determined by socially necessary labor time and that this socially necessary labor time gets expressed in price then I, I can see no reason why you wouldn't be able to look at the price system, you know, f math out some kind of multiplier, some kind of conversion factor, and uh, translate from price to labor time. <clears throat> so I think it stands to reason that something like the melt must exist. And the reason, the reason that I had any, like, sense of doubt that this is the absolute right approach comes more from a survey of the literature than anything else. Um, you know, what, when reading this, I mean, it seems to be a fairly sophisticated, um, you know, like uh, just sophisticated enough, right? You end up with a two by two matrix of your um, price and value um, figures. Let's see it. Okay, I'll put it on the screen here now, yeah. Yeah, uh, at top of page 26, table 2.1. Um, <clears throat> you have the value about Put um, W is value of output um, produced. Um, P is price of output value received. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. I'm not like particularly skeptical about this, but this is the fulcrum of a lot of skepticism, right? Like I, I was talking to um, Dave Zachariah, the the guy who is kind of in the cockshot tradition, right? Um, and this is what he said to me about it. The fundamental conceptual problem is this. In real capitalist market economies, unit prices of commodities fluctuate across time and space, even when the conditions of production are unchanged. What relation, of any, will labor time have to fluctuating prices? 
<clears throat> the melt approach of converting random prices into units of average labor is really no different than Adam Smith's notion of labor commanded. Just divide prices by the average wage rate and you will get the equivalent amount of labor that you could hire for that price. Why would that fundamentally be any better or worse than dividing by melt? You end up with a notion of exploitation similar to Robertus. Workers are cheated by the hour. All the theoretical advantages of classical Marxian labor values go out the window. Um, <clears throat> and so, so that's, you know, that's from the cockshot side of things. And then um, on the other hand, again, I, th I think we've, we'll, we've touched on this, we'll touch on it again. Uh, the value formers seem to think that there's a more fundamental uh, transformation happening between the worlds of, of value and price. I think, um, I think from Andrew's point of view, um, that these might be thought of as like dual system interpretations of Marx's value theory. Um, but you can see how prominent, you know, and an across like the spectrums of hyper mathematical to, you know, uh, humanity supremacist, you know what I mean? <laughs> Uh -huh. Well, can I say something here? Like, like one of the things that we're trying to do here is to try and figure out whether the TSSI is consistent, you know, and has it got logical problems. And from my point of view, looking at the melt, there is nothing. There's no problem with it. I can't see any problem with it as a as a scientific measure. Yeah, and to sort of briefly like bring up a point about like the sort of Paul Cock Shadian. Oh God, that just sounds horrible. Yeah, econophysics. Yeah. Should we maybe yeah. coming coming from that perspective, like Paul Cockshot explicitly argues that there's no difference between Ricardo's theory of value, labor labor theory of value and Marx's. So like for that person that you're bringing up to argue in that tradition that like the melt formula basically loses what makes Marx's like theory of value unique in comparison to the rest of classical political economy it just there's a sort of irony to that when you have like people like Paul Cockshot basically arguing that there's no difference between Ricardo and Marx in terms of their theories of value yeah, similarly, the Adam Smith school critiques would would be would be kind of strange too, because they argue that there's very little or no difference between Adam Smith and Marx. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the the world systems theorist economic works as opposed to their political ones. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so far this makes good. I'm going to add a qualification though, um, uh, just as a hermeneutic, and it's something that I think is not addressed. It doesn't just have to be logically and in, logical and consistent to be a, a proper interpretation. It also has to be logical, consistent, and the only logically consistent proper interpretation to actually solve the problem. If it's not, right. then, then you're, you have what are essentially arbitrary paradigms, but it can't be arbitrary. So, so it there is more than just logical consistency on the table. Yeah, I, I um, um, so uh, I, I don't think uh, Dave's um, 
critique here makes a lot of sense. I mean, Marx is really clear that total prices equal total labor uh, in yeah. the long run. Um, and to me, it seems that that interpretation is only possible if you uh, do some some kind of interpretation of Marx that I have never been able to understand where it comes from. Um, but that Marx is saying that exchange value and value are two completely uh, different things. Uh, I have I haven't found any sort of textual support for that. Uh, my hmm. my two times uh, around um, uh, Capital Volume One, but it, it seems to me that you really need to regard prices as, uh, i.e., exchange value as something very very different from from uh, from value. Um, I think the so the the the, the melt or uh, MELT monetary exp expression of labor time, uh, Marx. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kleiman <laughs> uh, made a reference to um, a guy called Ramos, who was apparently, according to Kleiman, the first one to sort of uh, explicate this this concept. And I've been trying to track that paper down, and I, I finally did. And uh, I found a quote here in the original paper that that might be uh, that might be useful. Someone, uh, if if you'd like me to to read it, I I could. It's just a, it's just, yeah. Um, Where about that paper is it? And I'll see if I can get it up here on the screen for people. Yeah, uh, sure. So I'll I'll send you the link. I think it's in the messenger already. Was it? Did you send uh, it previously? Yeah, the one I sent. Yeah, the week. I'm, 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 I'm going to send it again just so you have it right in front of you. Okay. So he's saying... I have, I have it here. I have it here. Okay, so let me see if I can... This is uh, Alejandro uh, Ramos Martinez, yeah. right? What page is it on? Then? Uh, page 10. Okay. So uh, page 10, first paragraph. Okay, here we go. One second there so people can... Let's see if we... Okay, put rigorously. Is that it? Yeah, that okay. one. Yeah. Put rigorously. Social labor and money are not two mutually exclusive measures of value, but two aspects of the same measure. Value spontaneously mm. measured in both social labor and money. In this sense, value has a twofold measure, the MEL. So this is presumably before it became known as MELT or something. The MEL is a result of the total social labor spent in production and the amount of money in which this labor is objectified as value, i.e. that it's objectified in commodity, and realized as value form, i.e. you know the the value is realized when when um, when it's uh, when it's paid for or as in price. So the value form thing here being essentially you know. Uh, price tag. The MEL is hence the amount of money in which one unit of socially necessary labor time is objectified. Um, so, uh, which is, you know, basically just saying total labor equals total prices, but in a, you know, I, I think more sort of more sort of uh, rigorous, but also very Marxian way might be somewhat inaccessible to to people not familiar with Marxist, you know, intra-Marxist uh, lingo. But I, I think this uh, this paragraph makes a whole lot of sense, uh, at least to me. So it removes it removes a lot of the classical value form critiques. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, wrong. <laughs> right. 
I mean, like, th this is, as much as I like trying to figure out what I Rubens meant, um, I, I, I do think this is pretty convincing um, that, you know, at least it, at least in a way, because one of the things the value forms critique do, it makes the idea of, of falsifying any part of the Marxist project by any standard almost impossible. Um, because value becomes this, this like highly reified, almost mystified thing that you can never pin down to one thing that only has multifarious forms that don't work in a single system. And that's maddening trying to figure out how you'd even deal with that. Like what would that even mean? Yeah. And the funny thing is, I know I said that they're kind of like dual system before, but actually when I'm thinking about it, um, I think, I think they're explicit. They recognize they're like Marxological enough to recognize that you know, value and price are a single system, but they still have that mystification about it, um, which is even actually more, you know, kind of woo. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to get there in a, in a few minutes. Will we, will we keep yeah. going with, with, with value and price rates of profit? I think we've all kind of said we think that the melt is, uh, or the mel, I much prefer the idea of the mel. We call it, we have machini and Mel. We're going to redefine all of it. We're going, we're going to introduce Plumbush and Schlieb next chapter. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simoleons, all currency in simoleons. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, chapter 2.1.9, value and price rates of profit. Um, Alex, do you want to go through this one maybe? Yeah, yeah, not a problem. So um, so what we've got here, um, uh, Kleiman's, uh, defining the different uh, ways of measuring rate of profit. So you've got the the value rate of profit, um, so surplus value over uh, total capitalist uh, total capital advanced. Um, uh, the, the other way uh, is to measure as there's the price rate of profit, uh, which I think he's expressing as pi over uh, c. And this is the, the total profit over the total capital advanced. Now, I think what, what he's trying to do is establish this idea of the, the general rate of profit, uh, which is then going to lead him up to the, the, the prices of production. Um, I think uh, I think I want to def defer to someone who's got a bit more of a mathematical background on this one, I think. <laughs> okay. Um... Well, so we just say that Marx, Marx is making the claim that the value rate of profit and the price rate of profit are equal. We don't have, yes. does anybody have any problems yes. with that? No, no. 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 Okay, so everybody understands that, that the rate of profit in money terms, um, you might have a, a, a sum of money, maybe uh, £10,000 uh, profit over £100,000 invested would be 10, 10%. And when you look at the value rate, so you look at the surplus that the capitalist gets might be 1,000 hours over 10,000 yeah. uh, hours uh, of capital put through the system and wages. And so the value rate is 10% and the price rate are both the same. That's all that he's saying here. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's try 2.1.10, the tendency of profit rates to equalize. Um, Rosa, do you want to do one, or, or are you uh, still trying to catch up and reading on the different bits? Is Rosa alive? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm still trying to like catch up on that sort of thing. Okay. I don't want to make a fool of myself. You can leave that to me. 
Um, so <laughs> the, the the tendency of profit rates to collide. So this is the idea that capital, uh, if you've got a very very profitable business, a new business comes up. Uh, and the rate of profit is extremely high or the rate of surplus is extremely high in it, uh, that other capitalists will notice that these mm. guys are, you know, becoming as rich as, uh, who's very rich, somebody rich, and that they will start to compete with that person and migrate their cap capital slowly towards that other business. And there is a tendency for the these rates of, profit to get diminished and so the idea is that throughout the entire industry uh throughout the entire economy profit rates will have a tendency to equalize now the the actual empirical evidence for this one shows that there is still a lot of variance at any time in a, in a in a in an economy but that you know things are moving you know certain industries maybe over time will will go towards the same rate of profit but then new industries pop up and so it's this is all and always churning but the idea is that capital is attracted to the profitable industries right uh can, can i just point point out one thing here before we move on to uh to the next thing uh because it's something that i missed um the first time i read it but it's it, uh i think it's really important um because it, he's going to show why why this particular thing is true in in the next uh, 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 paragraph or subchapter and the next table. So what he says is not that the rates of profit uh, the, the different rates of profit will equalize. He he's saying um, this process tends to eliminate differentials among the price rates of profit. The price thing there is super important because uh, mm. in just a few uh, just a few lines and on the next page he's going to show us how uh, price rates of profit for an industry may differ significantly or uh, even enormously from their value rate of profit. Um, yeah. And show us why they're important. Uh, different things. So the thing that e that's equalized, it's not the value rate of profit that's equalized. It's the price um, rate of, of profit. Um, yeah. That's the only thing that's the only thing that will equalize because uh, I suppose if value rates of profit could equalize, then you know that would essentially mean that uh, all industries would be equally labor intensive, which is yeah. apparently which is just blatantly silly so that's, yeah. I think that's just an important detail I, yeah. I have a question about that um and this may be getting us off track but it's something i've been thinking about a lot because one of the distorting factors that Kleiman mentioned in a speech once was that monopoly forms of capital i.e intellectual property and i don't mean monopoly capital the way a lot of leninists do but in but i mean literally like intellectual property would be a distorting factor but I couldn't figure out the exact relationship he was referring to. And is it related to this price versus value value rate difference? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, you would say so? Yeah, uh, it's it's related to the to why price and value are two different things, but not necessarily, you know, uh, 
totally independent. Uh, he actually brought up the the uh, uh, in the uh, reading reading capital closely uh, course that he taught. Uh, he brought up that specific example of uh, of intellectual property rights and so on in in the case of software, for instance. It's interesting to me because it would explain something that I've been troubling been troubling me for years is why um, national economies um, do do not have a highly a high productive sector or a relationship tangentially to a high productive sector like Britain um, can't just do IP stuff to generate uh, you know value because it because essentially it seems like they should be able to if if there's no if there's no relationship and they there is no evidence that they can um, but you know they can command profits we'll we'll uh, we'll see. In, in the next uh, table, something that I, I think might shed some light on your question, Derek, that you can you can create very, very little value, but still receive a lot of profit. Uh, and yeah. you can generate a tiny amount of surplus value, but still uh, bringing hordes, bring in hordes of cash. And yeah. you know, when you look at the actual uh, bookkeeping and actual accounting, uh, it looks like you're you're having a high rate of profit, which you have in, in, in price terms, but you're not actually creating all that much value. So that would explain yeah. things like the Bezoses of the world, essentially, and a lot of paper wealth. Well, yes. the Be Bezos is probably doing a lot of actual, he's got a lot of capital invested, so I wouldn't think he's got a high rate of profit. Amazon never make a rate, I don't think they make any profit. So he's not an example of it. But well, like but we're, we're conflating price pro, pri, price <laughs> price so we're trying price to talk, rate and value rate again. IP. I mean, like, like no, but you're talking about no, but like you're trying to talk about like Amazon is not really a profitable company. It's no, trying it's to create not. a monopoly. It, but that's but he, it's but a, he's a very he's able to capitalize on very on a lot of paper wealth himself. So like, that's, yeah. what explains that? If does this explain that specifically, Bezos, oh. not Amazon. Yeah. So like, let, let's talk about, so we're convinced, we're confused in some things here, like intellectual property, like Derek, it's not like the Britain can just say, oh, we'll just create loads of IP and we'll just get loads of profit that way and not have to create firms. Like the thing is you have to, you, ha you have to get that IP. It has to be good IP. It has to be IP that's going to be worth something. You know, it's got to be actually a good piece of software that people want. It's not a but, trivial thing to just say. So you, but software is not a commodity because of labor value. I mean, I'm going to well, say something. It, because the labor it, value invested almost none once you after it's created. Completely. Completely. But yeah. you still have to be able to create a, a piece of software that everybody wants to use. And you have to be able to then generate a rent off it. So, oh, it's, so it's a form of yeah. rent seeking, right? But I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah, wondering yeah. if the if if this whole rent seeking slash and there's this whole other thing about um about the ability to actually enforce IP, which requires a fairly advanced state in a very physical and direct way. I mean, like they have to be able to actually enforce the law with a gun. Also, um, there's like the price of like continuous updates that need to be done by like programmers and that's right sort of thing so there, there is still there is still commodity but like i i don't want to get us distracted on it i just have always wondered wow. if, well we're distracted on yeah. it, but i've just i've just i've just wondered about if this distinction that emmanuel made is a key to that because i i used to beat my head up around what i was missing on the relationship yeah. Uh, yeah, like it, so, it actually it actually doesn't matter if it is rent or if it's not rent in this case for the logical implications of this 
we don't care right. what's happening yes. with these different two companies, whether they're doing it through IP right. or they're doing it just through some other mechanism. Thank we you. don't actually care. There's two there's two companies. One's got it labor intensive and one's not. They'll right. equalize regardless of whether one is IP or rent or whatever else is happening in the background. I think we should just kind of yeah. put that to the side because it's not actually relevant to the logical discussion, but it is like something we want to talk about. But not here but but th that's what i wanted to say is that we're dealing at a much higher level of abstraction here we're not even talking about like rontier dynamics exactly kind of stuff. Yeah. like we're not even there yet yeah. we're not even there yet yeah. but it is a good point i don't want to could i don't want to say it's not a good point but, but no it's, it's a great point because um um and especially like monopoly is one of the major distorting factors in in markets like Absolutely. so yeah it's it's, per it's a perfectly yeah. relevant point and uh it's one of the many reasons that prices don't exactly line up with values in the way you'd expect if they're part of a single system. So well, yeah, but, but the, yeah, but, okay. I'm sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Yeah, I was yo, just going to say yeah. let's let's look at this example that 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 Emmanuel was going on, and we can look at yeah. it. And we can talk about what might cause these different things in reality. How about yes. that? So yeah, we've got the the chemical industry versus the restaurant industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so the restaurant industry is going to be a lot more labor intensive. Um, Whereas the chemical in industry, for every uh, you know dollar uh, that goes towards uh, an employee, maybe five dollars goes towards machinery, towards equipment, um, and yet despite this this differing uh, organic composition, they're still going to have uh, a, a similar rate of profit um, over the long run. There's a kind of a tendency for 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 capitalists to seek out profitable. Uh, or, or, or surplus generating businesses, and that over time creates a tendency, a tendency uh, towards equalization. In okay. the in the in the in the price rate of production of profit, I mean, because that's correct. The that, price, the... the price rate of profit. Yeah. All right. So, can, can, has anybody got like uh, page twenty eight open? We got the table there. I have it up on the. YouTube. Yeah, I'm looking straight at it. Yeah. So. So if you look there at this, uh, I'll just talk through it. We've got the the capital C is for the capital invested, and then we've mm -hmm. got K is the oh my god, what is K? Uh, cost price is it? Yeah, uh, the, the cost, cost price. price. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then we got surplus. S is the surplus. So we see there the two industries. One has got two hundred in capital because they're only employing a very little amount of uh, labor. They have probably a, a small amount of surplus, so they've eight. So you've only got a surplus value uh, rate of profit of 4%, and the other one has 40% in the restaurant. It makes sense. Yeah. A restaurant doesn't have a massive chemical plant, and it probably <laughs> still has quite a lot of staff. But when we equalize the profit, uh, if we do the price of production, that's the pi over C, I presume, we have 3% yeah. in both. So we mm -hmm. see that we can be able to equalize both in, in industries now one the chemical industry might be doing that through through for by having a patent on the drug that they're actually producing you know yeah and they might be able to get the extra bit because of their patent or some other way or it might work its way out through the market maybe they have a monopoly yeah who knows how it's actually operating getting it but there is a there is this tendency for the rate of profit yeah. to equalize across these the, different types of industries the, the way I see it, even though the, the restaurant industry is creating more surplus value, the chemical indus, industry is siphoning, siphoning it off. It's, it, it's reallocating it, that, yes. that surplus value. Yes. That's, um, so um, the, the, the reason that I 
thought this table uh, was amazing <laughs> um, is that I think it, it it really shines light on what uh, one thing that's I think really important to the TSSI and that's the sequence of how stuff is determined, right? So um, uh, look at this, when I looked at this table the first time, I, I sort of stared at it and I was sort of confused why you couldn't, you know, start from the right-hand side and work your way to the to the left-hand side. Why can't you start from P and, and move to C, etc. But this this really sort of makes help helps to make sense of the fact that um, the first thing that's determined is S over C, right? So this is a sequential argument as well because the total uh, the 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 um, the general rate of profit, i.e. the um, the total rate of profit in value terms, in this case, the bottom line of S over C, which is 48 divided by 300 in this case. Once we know that, uh, and the, the assumption is that, you know, total price rate of profit will have the, the total, the pi over C and S over C have to be equal. Yeah. So once we have S over C, that then will determine pi over C and during and under these uh, these assumptions that means that uh, regardless of how much value one industry actually produces the 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 price received by them will be determined by um, by the uh, value the S over C the, the general rate of profit yeah exactly so it's a sequential uh, argument. Uh, it's a, it's almost like a causal argument. Um, yeah, and you can see that once once this happens, the the sole determining factor really is how much capital is advanced. Um, mm. IRC equalizes over all industries. Um, then you know, pi will be the pi over C will be constant. So the one thing that changes, if you look at pi, you know what the their actual profits are. You look at chemical and 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 the restaurant. Um, uh, the, the the one thing that determines how much profits they make is how much capital is advanced. I thought that was a that's a really profound insight. That um, um, if if uh, price rates the rates of profit to equalize the greatest uh, the greater profits will go to the more capital intensive uh, operations. And I thought that. That explains uh, a whole lot of things that is going on in the actual economy. Yeah, it, it does explain. Actually, this makes sense of some things I used to think about. Like when you work in the restaurant industry, the profit margin seems low, but it shouldn't be because it's labor intensive. But that makes sense when you look at the when you're just thinking about it only in terms of of uh, of an equalization of price rates over time. Like I, it, it's clear. You're right. I just like to, to look at this uh, economy so we can take loads of drugs from the chemical industry and then go for a party in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I find it pretty helpful to talk through these mathematical examples because when you're just looking at a volley of numbers, it's like, okay, you know, these numbers add up. Yeah, well, my what, what do those letters mean again? Even having, I mean, I've read this and I've read the explanation of it, but only sitting now, only sitting now talking about it has this actually struck me as being super important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 
it's very very important and i Talking about the the simil, uh, the melt, when we really get into the melt, I was reading a paper during the week by uh, Alan, I think it's Alan Potts. I think he's written um, a book with Kleiman on the whole debate, uh, a series of papers uh, called Is Marxist Theory of Profit uh, Right? And he does some like ones of like surplus and transforming or sorry of price and value the two the single system and showing them how you can transform them all in one go and how they all equalize and it makes the whole thing really simple it makes everything the whole controversy look as simple as that table you know it's a little bit more complicated mm. but pretty much and when we get to actually we're talking around these things of single system and dual systems and all this stuff bit of a head wrecker but we want to be spending our time looking at these tables and, and picking them apart because I think that's where we really see what's going on. Is there anybody, have we, have we, have, do we want to say any more about that or will we move on? Yeah. I mean, I just generally, like, when I initially read this, I didn't really understand what they were talking about in terms of, like, what they meant by equalize in terms of, like, the why, like, the rush. Basically, like, I didn't understand that it was meant to explain why the restaurant industry isn't, like, producing more value than, like, the chemical industry, isn't, like, more profitable than the chemical industry, even though there's, it's more labor intensive. I, I didn't really understand that until, like, having, like, the sort of discussion and that sort of thing, like, helped me explain it. And I think it highlights, like, a general utility of having like sort of reading groups and that and that kind of thing to like rely on when you're reading harder texts like this and like capital and that sort of thing like it's generally harder to study alone than to like have like a reading group when dealing with like books like this i guess i think yeah, most definitely uh, yeah Marxists are usually pretty good at that when it comes to like humanities texts coming together and trying to talk about it. But it's pretty rare that we do it with math. And I think it's maybe more important because, you know, a lot of us, like maybe not in this particular group, but, you know, a lot of a lot of Marxists are uh, pretty rusty with math. Like, knuckleheads. Uh, knuckleheads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely Guilty. shit at math. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, I'm just beyond enumerate. I, you know, took some calculus yep. classes, you know. <laughs> I can okay. barely tell the time. I yeah. can do statistics, and that's about it. Um, so, okay, um, that, did, did we did we break down the aggregate equalities? Yeah, so let's that's important. Yep. Let's talk about these. So these are the um, the the so the aggregates. So I'll highlight the aggregates: total profit and total surplus both equal forty-eight. So we see there, pi is forty-eight profit, and total surplus is forty-eight s, and total price of production. And total value both equal 118. So these are the two guys over here. Um, this is WMP, you know. Um, like he says, he goes on to say, Marx attached great importance to these three aggregate qualities, hold, holding that they confirmed his value theory. In the aggregate, the production of value and surplus value does determine price, profit, and the rate of profit. That's important. It determines the price, the profit, and the rate of profit. That's very important, yeah? We should see, especially in chapter nine, critics have persistently denied for almost 100 years these aggregates hold true. Okay, and, so. Uh, this, yeah. this, is, uh, this is why I, I really push the thing that, you know, you have to read this from left to right because it's a, it's a sequence. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, he, he that's a very good point. He doesn't take profits first, right? He doesn't he doesn't make the argument that oh we look objectively in the real world and we see that a restaurant brings in sixteen uh, million dollars or whatever this is uh, worth of worth of profits. It's a he does it the other way around. What determines the value of pi? What devalu- What determines the the price and the profits that they receive? The the determinant is the thing that's to the left, which is pi over c. How do we know what pi over c? How do we know what pi over c is? Well, we add up all of the surplus, forty plus forty eight, divided by all of the capital. So, as soon as we know the capital advanced and we know how much uh, surplus value is is created, that th- this is a this is a really sort of um, super strong argument uh, and, um, and I think really big claim is that the profits, the price that they receive, uh, you know, the thing you actually see on the books is determined by the general rate of profit. Yeah. Um, I would- huge, man. Like the because most the the intuition is you know what determines the profit is just like how successful you are in the market and you know the how much yep. is in the register at the end of the day. But uh, the the TSSI claim here is that the the profits are sort of determined later on in the process. It, you know the the thing that really matters is S over C, and once you have that, yeah. then everything else sort of clicks into place. Um, I would. I would go so far as to say to say that it's the TSSI is a, is, is probably it's probably better to say it's what Marx says. And I think when we look at this example here and we look at how it's saying the logic flows and determines the the, the setup of how value form says it to me is like you know fair enough people can come up with their own theories in that, but it's an entirely separate theory that the determination for me is clear. What do people think about that? Is that too bullshit? Oh, you're right. I, 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 I would. I think I agree. I think the, the the biggest the biggest tendency that people are going to have on accepting this is a they're not going to understand the math, which hopefully after listening to this they will. And b the language is slightly different than the language Marx Marx uses. Um, not not. I don't, well, I mean, I think all the categories are from Marx, but but because of the way Marx structures his argument. Because he doesn't, you know, Marx doesn't do like if you go through the cap, like capitals volume one, two, and three, it's not like you're starting off with the aggregate tables to prove the point. You're actually getting a historical description of how this could have arrived. Like, literally, that's how it works, starting with the commodity assumptions. So, like, I could see how a reader would look at this and then remember their experience of reading capital and think it was different. I'm just trying, I'm approaching this philologically right now, but I think as a actual mathematical argument, this is sound. It makes it, this also makes things testable um, in a way that I mean, like value form isn't, you just can't. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like Marx to me. No, you know, Marx is a scientist. So this is very, you know, and he's also doing all some maths all over the place, you know, particularly in the later volume. So, you know, what doesn't appear at all in volume one appears in volume two and three, you know, and probably most people never get there. So, so, so did we explicitly spell out what the aggregate equalities are? 
because okay. he kind of goes over it and it just I, I so rarely actually hear this um spelled out that i just want to just uh run through it just one more time it's uh it's the uh total profit equals the total surplus value uh the total price of production equals the total value yeah and the economy-wide price rate of profit equals economy-wide value rate of profit and the first two are consequences of the last. And according to Kleiman, Marx thought they confirmed Marx's value theory, right? That, which I think that's an interesting comment, you know, in the sense that yeah. I feel like these are like <laughs> not confirmations, but sort of the sort of like, you know, assumptions. Like I see again, we're getting to this, you know, just debate between what's the axiom and what's the conclusion being argued for here. Which, yeah, you know, I think this is a these are the conclusions pretty much, you know, the first two qualities are consequences of the latter. Yeah. So, you know, th these to me are deductions mm. in reality for me. So I don't yeah. have any problems with understanding that logical I mean, progression. Even methodologically, if you looked at the text, Marx isn't, Marx is not, the, Mar like if they were, if they were axioms, I kind of tended to believe like a commod, the commodity definition is axiomatic. Like it's defined. It's also... But like these things are are consequences and conclusions of that, not not axiomatic definitions. I mean, otherwise he would just state. I mean, I really think Marx would have just stated them. Mm. Like he's not. He's, he wasn't like a. He, he's classic. I mean, he was classically educated. It's not like he didn't know how to make an axiomatic argument. No, no. But Marx, I think I think people are right to say that Marx is reluctant to do so whenever whenever he. When he's arguing, whereas Engels, Engels is much more of much more comfortable with that writing. Style. Yeah, but I mean, but in so much there's there's a difference between Marx and Engels that is important. It is often the difference between stating something deductively and starting axiomatically because it actually does have consequences in the political realm. Yeah. Okay, are we good to go on to the next session? The tendential fall, the rate of profit. Who wants to give this a go? Um, uh, who's here? Alex, <laughs> give it a go. <laughs> Alex, yeah, I interrupted uh, Alex uh, yep. before. So, uh, the, the, the ten, uh, tendential fall in the rate of profit. Um, so basically, um, as capitalists introduce labor saving technologies uh, into the workplace, there's fewer and fewer, uh, there, there's fewer and fewer dollars spent on variable capital as a ratio. Uh, of the initial capital advance. So put it in layman's terms, um, there's more more machines in the workplace, fewer workers. Um, now, if we hold that the, the, the total rate of, um, the, the, the only thing that can produce value in the economy is, is, is workers' uh, labour power. Um, if there's fewer labourers involved, then the rate of profit will fall. Just, did anyone have anything to add or, or, or correct anything I've just said then? Uh, I, there's a quote in the chapter here. I just highlighted it. I, I find what you can see on the screen, which I think is, an, you know, Marx is, yes. you know, he's a goddamn genius when he can put things like this. The progressive yeah. tendency for the rate of profit to fall is thus simply the expression peculiar to the capitalist mode of production of the progressive development of the social productivity of labor. That is a that is a hell of a quote. Yeah, because I mean, yep. basically, what's happening mm -hmm. is you're decreasing socially ne necessary labor time all the time. So you're also decreasing the amount of labor inputted, and thus, 
it would. But it's it a, it's well, it's it a really. Pre- mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry, guitar. Keep going. No, I just want to explain the logic because this is really elegant. But like, there's a very mm. elaborate logic that relates to the entire other, you know, uh, other volumes of Capital that you kind of have to like for it to really work. Because this is this is actually an argument against people like Stephen King who who talk about the fact that Marx supposedly don't don't consider um, the effects of what do they say that we don't consider the effects of. Uh, Let's not give Steve Keen any uh, any any airing on this. Because he's a hack. Okay, yeah, well, when it comes to Marx. Hey. Well, I mean, I agree, but I mean, that's the the common argument is there's a di- there's a total disregard for technology, and I'm like, no, it's absolutely <laughs> essential to why this happens. Because if you if if there's less and less human labor power, there's less and less ability to abstract surplus rents, and everything's going to eventually fall a cost. So yeah, anyway, this just violates every um, bourgeois intuition about how technology works. Does it though? I mean, like maybe not now, but when you look at like in in the consciousness when you're watching Black Mirror or something. But I'm I'm more mean in models. Like again, th- the way that people were modeling uh, profit productivity rate, of capital, and, yeah, yeah, productivity in, of in, capital and the comps input output matrices. Like uh, it was sort of, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it looked like it was analytically the case that the rate of profit really couldn't fall between periods like in these, in these models. So that even someone, and even someone like Robert Brenner, again, a lot of respect for him, but you know, the, the way that he was modeling this stuff, it seemed like from get like the, you couldn't have like a fall in the rate of profit due to technological change. I think, I think this, I don't know. I think this is a, but this I think empirically, like historically, point. it's like clearly true, though. I mean, like if you look at like, I do like too. GDP growth rates as you develop technology, gr- GDP growth rates drop like a mofo. I so. mean, look, I, I I think that, and you know, I think it's true. But in in a lot of modeling, and including the 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 Schroffian kind of modeling, uh, Ian Steedman kind of stuff, and what he calls like the. What does he call them? Physicalists or whatever? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, um, and may- maybe it's just because I don't understand it, but it does seem like it's just, there's just an assumption that makes that like impossible. Like, yeah, what they the say that they'd say that, well, their, their rate of profit is a physical rate of profit. So if their output is increased, their profit rate goes up. <clears throat> but in reality, we see right. the profit rates, the price profit rates in the real world go down. So yeah. it, it leads one to, to think that they're, their analysis empirically is not good. Well, I, I just, I, and again, this is one of those things that I'm, that's why I keep throwing qualifiers in. I really don't understand how these modeling assumptions are thought of as neutral. Well, they're not. I they're mean, not. I actually, I used to think about this too. And I would think about libertarians who would talk about how prices always go down yet profits will inevitably always go up. That never made any sense to me. And they would argue that as a benefit of capitalism. Like, like, look, the, yeah. the point that the consumer is going to get lower and lower and lower, but the profits are going to go up and up and up. How? That doesn't make any yeah. sense. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, and I think also, like, the, the, this, this bombshell of a, of a quote sort of also puts the finger on, you know, where 
um, where uh, value production and use value production are in contradiction. And what's good for society is not necessarily good for, you know, uh, the capitalist Absolutely. class. Yeah, so Absolutely. like the, uh, the, uh, the progressive development of the social productivity of labor is a good thing, right? I think Marx thinks that. I think everyone who's, you know, not a primitivist thinks that. Um, and he's saying that the tendency for the rate of profit to fall is just the expression, like, in peculiar to the capitalist mode of production. So it is only in capitalism where a good thing for the, you know, the society and um, and the economy as as a whole is a bad thing for capitalists. This is only true in a very specific form of production, uh, and I think that's a that's a really sort of man. That's solid, you know. And that's that's brilliant because it also makes it very clear the distinctions between other modes of productions. Which, you know, I, lately I've been reading around on Piketty, and he can't explain like the difference between feudal and uh, and capitalist growth cycles because he assumes they're the same market. I mean, they work on the same assumptions and this makes it very clear that they're not, you know? Yeah. So, well, they don't have the, they don't have that technological drive, you know, which yeah, it's not just they don't have that technological of... drive. They also don't have the technological drive specifically to, to generate surplus to generate surplus value, which, you know, is another contradiction there. But I mean, like, because, because if you are directly investing um, your surplus into expropriation, which, you know, so I can physically take more stuff from you, which is what feudal society generally did when they had a surplus, you can't grow economically at all. Well, also, it, they, they, they put it into building castles and palaces and stuff like that. You know, the, the idea of increasing you know just a, anyway let's not get into that but it, it's true if anybody wants to see on a side note steve keen getting his ass handed to him talking about mmt economics they can watch him take on warren mosler in the debate on youtube where it was goddamn painful to see him fall in his flat in his face but um moving swiftly onwards oh boy. <laughs> it was it was very enjoyable but um yeah. can you link that in the chat by the way I will. I'll try and find it now. So I um, want to say I appreciate Steve Keen's uh, relentless takedown of bourgeois economics. That is good. And I will say I'll give him credit where it's due. But if you actually read his book on that one, what was his book on? I can't remember what it's called. But Debunking Economics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's terrible on Marx. Absolutely terrible. Well, of yeah. course, I was, I was cringing through Nothing to Lose But Their Minds because it should have been called Nothing to Lose But Their Brains. But anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the zombie, the zombie world we live in. But he had like in in that book, it's like two hundred and fifty pages on neoclassical, and like it's 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 very noticeable that he didn't do anything on, um, say, Austrian or Andes, but he devoted thirty or forty pages to Marx. To, no. to be to be fair, like Austrian economics kind of don't really matter outside of their influence on neoclassical economics back in the day. But you neither does. I mean? But in the in the broad sector of things, Marxist economics doesn't matter now either. But the thing is that it, it it's obvious from him that it, you know Marx is the actual is a is an actual thinker and he's a target and that's why he yeah. targeted yeah. that as yeah. a post Keynesian. Marxism is like Marx. Marxism is sort of the third big school, and Steve Keen is is a post Marxist. He's an ex Marxist. He wants he's, to be a a dialectical he's a post, Keynesian. He's a Keynesian. He's a post Keynesian. He's not even. He's not a Marxist. In but he was. But he he was a Marxist. 
Yeah, but Thomas Sowell's claims have been a Marxist too, so we can ignore that claim. Let's move yeah. on. Let's move on. <laughs> there is there's something here I want to go into here in the next part of this one where he talks. Uh, okay, let's have a look at this. He talks about how we can understand this. So let's have a look at this formula here. Okay, so everybody see this this formula where he talks about. Um, so let me read some of this. According to the theory that, uh, but according to the theory that value is determined by labor time, it's workers living labor that adds all new value. Moreover, as we have seen, an average hour of labor always yields the same amount of value, independent of variations in productivity, which is Marx's way of expressing the tendency of productivity to reduce prices. Technological innovation causes a fall in the amount of new value created per dollar of advanced capital. Given a constant rate of exploitation, rate of surplus value, the amount of surplus value created per dollar of advanced capital, in other words, the rate of profit necessarily falls as well. So he lays out this, this, this uh, equation here um, where we have S over C. So that's the, rate of, that's the value rate of profit. And then we have the rate of exploitation S over, is equal to S over V over V over C. Okay. So it's the rate of exploitation multiplied by what? It's um, the rate of surplus value, sorry, multiplied by the percentage of variable capital order to hire workers. So, um, yeah. Yep. Is, has everyone followed on that? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, th I think I've got that. All right, cool. So let's have a look. If the rate of surplus value is two, okay, so two hundred percent. So for every hour of, uh, for every three hours of labor, you're only getting paid one hours of labor. So that's two percent, and uh, twenty percent of the capital is advanced to hired workers. Okay, then it's it's two times twenty percent, which is forty percent. Okay, so the the rate of profit then in that scenario would be forty percent. But if the rate of if technology technological change uh, increases. And the percentage of capital advance used to hire workers, say, goes from from twenty percent down to ten percent. Then, and the rate of exploitation is the same. The rate of profit is halved, down to twenty percent. Okay, so it's um, it's basically just showing you and splitting it out. How if you if you see that the rate of exploitation is constant, the more the smaller the element of variable capital. Is going to necessarily lead to a, re a reduction in the rate of profit. I don't know if I've explained that well, but that's just yeah. it's showing that if the rate of exploitation stays constant, it'll it'll by definition will reduce the rate of profit. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm, I, seem to I have, think it'll start to make more sense as we in the in the next part. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. does somebody want to? Who wants to take on the next part? 2.1.13, the rate the rising rate of surplus value and its limited effect. Who's who's volunteering? Lexi, do you want to do one? You haven't done one in ages. Yeah, lazy. yeah. I, I was <laughs> well, I I'm I, I think this part is actually like secretly uh, super fucking important. Um because let's see. I think this sort of I I just want to make sure I'm this is the right section. Yeah, I think this is the one that implicitly pushes back on Heinrich's mathematical argument against uh, Marx's presentation of the law of the falling rate of profit. 
Um, so I think I've mentioned that before and that, you know, Hey, at least this guy is trying to do math. He's just some philologist, right? You know, why is he trying to do math? <clears throat> you know, that's not something they normally do. I think that's an interesting part of that guy's work. And this gives us a, uh, basically a, a response, um, I implicitly. So let's talk about what it actually says. Um, same notes, my notes. Um, okay, so it's so sorry, the, the rising. Um, basically, the claim is that the rising rate of surplus value um, has a limited effect on the total surplus value created. On uh, therefore, on the the rate of profit, it also has a limited effect on the rate of profit, even if uh, surplus value goes to infinity, and the total amount of uh, surplus labor extracted cannot be larger than the total amount of living labor performed. Um, so this, that's like the reduction of this section. Um, yeah, so it's the idea that like, if there is an increase in productivity, say I'm getting a certain amount of money so that I can buy a car and, and, and a DVD player and whatever, that as the productivity increases, the prices of what I need to keep my standard living at the same rate, materially, use value wise, will drop. So there, the, the, the idea of productivity can actually lead to a reduction in the price of, which should be able to, for the capitalists, be able to let the workers have the same standard of living with less money. So that there is this uh, balancing act between uh, the rate of profit going down, but also the, it should lead to a rate of um, exploitation increasing that same dynamic. Yeah, you can get away with paying your workers less. Because yeah, it costs because less the to reproduce them. And the, the, the DVD the fridge, is cheaper. The, your bread, your shoes, your clothing, they're all going going down in price because they're uh, produced more efficiently. Yeah, and um, he makes a point that it, like, it, it might seem, therefore, that a sufficient rise in the, in the surplus value can always upset, in the rate of surplus value can always upset or more than offset the tendency for the rate of profit to fall stemming from the replacement yep. of workers by machines, but Marx anticipated and countered the claim in volume one. Um, let's, let's read out this example. Do you see that? Imagine that first. Oh, yeah. This is the example we'll get across. Okay. Let me so, highlight it here. Imagine that at first, for each $1 million of advanced capital, there are five workers, and that each worker supplies five hours of surplus labor per day. The total daily surplus labor is five times five equals 25 hours. Now, if, as a result of mechanization, the workforce is reduced to one worker per million dollars of advanced capital, the total daily surplus labor must fall since in no case can it exceed 24 hours per worker. All right? Yeah. The rate of profit must therefore fall as well. So uh, in this case, even if a worker works 24 hours a day, every day of the week, every day of the year, the, the surplus could maximum be mm -hmm. 24 hours. Well, so when there's five workers working five hours a day, the minimum would be 25 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So, so the, so even though you can, you can negate the, this part of the uh, falling rate of profit, there is a limit to how much you can negate it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Anybody yeah, got any so objections to what we're saying or what Marx is saying or what Kleiman's saying? Uh, yeah, and this is uh, significant in the later literature because uh, Heinrich's 
argument is that Marx only proves that the, um, if I remember correctly, is that um, Marx only proves that the rate of surplus uh, value will fall and not the rate of profit. But if you have uh, this mathematical understanding of Marx, it's it directly translates into this uh, rate of profit falling. Yeah. yeah. Literally, that example that I talked through and confused everybody with the S over C, with S <laughs> over V and V equals over C, you know, that disproves Heinrich. That is just, as far as I can see, it's basic, basic math. I can't see how that can, could anybody could make uh, an argument against what we've just discussed. Yeah, and it's only the right-hand side of that, the 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 s over v that has any sort of physical limitation which is the argument v over c you know can vary hmm. okay um let me see now so one second so what is next the meaning of the tendential fall okay who wants to have a go at this bad boy um derek have a go there Derek is dead. Somebody else want to have a goal while I'm doing something here for a second? No, I'm here. Um, Sorry, I forgot I was on mute like I was supposed to be. Um, The meaning of the tangential fall, and this is actually important because a lot of people, um, including who we just mentioned, Heinrich, argued that a a tangential law is a logical contradiction, and thus we could ignore this. Um, So anyway... um, so the idea is that the reason why it's not like a straight immiseration is that there are other countervailing influences that are always working against the general the the general decline in pro in profits. So and and that actually um, this decline is not the cause of crises, but is actually fixed by crises does creating a tendency that but not a straight linear trend that's how i've read that uh, so so what as we talked about before um there's a there's a recurrent uh, devaluation of the means of production um the, the workers means of subsistence is being reduced in price and therefore, the falling rate of profit is constantly overcome. And so you can't express uh, the falling rate of profit as a kind of a, uh, an empirical trend over time. It, it's more of a, a, an analysis of what's causing crisis. And I think, uh, I think there's a difference between reading uh, – I mean, th- th- this is a, a crisis theory. It's not a breakdown theory, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. He's talking right. about this is an overall general tendency, but there are counter tendencies to this. Um, yeah. One of which I'm not sure if he goes into it. In, is it in this? Yeah, it is in this chapter where he talks about, I think, um, how uh, crises can cause um, uh, capital to get devalued. So, for example, in the previous case, if we had the million dollars of the one guy working and there was some massive crisis and that, 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 uh, company went bust and suddenly we had one guy working and somebody rebought a different capitalist came in and bought that for a quarter of a million dollars 
instead of a million dollars, then his rate of profit would be yeah. four times what it was to the last capitalist. So the, that um, are, yeah, sorry, sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, that's that's it. Yeah. Oh yeah, so I was just I was going to say the, the the denominator in in the 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 C is being wiped out, which is uh, putting the rate of profit up uh, up again, and therefore it is this this sort of cyclical um, overcoming of the of right. this tendency. So yeah, and so crisis here would also align roughly to um, the business cycle, but with a much with a much better explanation of how the business cycle actually works and is generally given. Yeah, I, I think we should also say something about some other tendencies that can negate it. Like, if you go back to the like the eighties or the nineties, and if you wanted to record music, you had to go into a big ass uh, recording studio that would have a big tape machine, and it was like hundreds, hundred thousand pounds to set up yourself at a proper re recording desk. And nowadays, it can be done on a laptop with like some mics and stuff to a very high level similar to what it was in that case you can actually have the the new technologies coming in and i don't know again some background noise from somebody i don't know who it is but um might be you derek but um so like a new technology like the computer can come in and say usb microphones and things like that and they can actually reduce the amount of capital that's needed to set up a recording studio so sometimes the actual technological advance can cause the amount of expenditure on capital you know that you need to, for a business to drop dramatically so there's a number of different ways but that's also one that people don't talk about enough they always talk about crisis but they don't actually talk about technological reduction in the cost of capital which cause i mean interestingly it would it would cause crisis in a way i mean because it would reduce i mean it, it would the, cause yeah it decreases socially necessary labor time, thus decreases the need for labor overall, and thus you have a a, dr a drop in value. Well, so, it would yeah. reduce it would reduce the capital value, the value invested by the big recording studios, but it would also increase the profit rate of people who want to set up, because if you think about it, the ratio of surplus value to capital invested would be much uh, smaller. So the the profit rate would go up. Well. You would think if everything was going, if all of the thing was sold at the value, the idea of you know the the recording studios back in the eighties, they would be able to charge essentially a monopoly rent probably because there was so few of them. But there you see that there are different tendencies. Just that one, I think, always gets neglected by people like Kleiman. They always talk about say a market problem or uh, say a, a crisis, but sometimes it's actually productivity that can can do it at the same time but so um, um there, there is a an important line here um regarding the the devaluation of means of production that i think is um sort of uh, sort of points to how you need to take this book in its in its totality um and uh so last time we talked about um the value of, of means of production or the price of the the, the, um, the value transferred by constant capital. Do you, do you guys remember that discussion? Yep. yep. Yeah. So this mm -hmm. is just a, um, the thing that you highlighted there, uh, Tom, on, on the screen is, is a consequence of that. And it sort of, in, in the way I read it, it 
this has to follow from um, the TSSI interpretation of how constant capital transfers value. So he's saying um, the devaluation of means of production is a consequence of increasing productivity. Now, what did we say that the um, value transferred by the means of production was? Well, we said it was current cost, right? So current cost is going, the current cost of your, um, uh, of your uh, constant capital decreases over time as a consequence of increasing productivity. And this is, uh, this is a capital loss. So capitalists incur losses as a result of this devaluation. Um, so therefore, part of the C is, is, um, is annihilated uh, and the, a portion of the capital value advanced in the past is wiped out. This, this has to be true if, um, if it is the, the sort of current cost of the means of production that matters as he um, explicated um, earlier. So I, I, I just thought that was a, like an interesting thing uh, of how all of this sort of connects together and why you just can't have one without the other. Yeah, um, I don't have too much to add to that particular point. You did a, it's a pretty fair summary. Um, let's see. Uh, there is an, another thing that I wanted to get into here, which is the distinction between um, this uh, reading and uh, what Kleiman is saying is Marx's uh, articulation of the falling rate of profit or the late, uh, law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Um, whew, what a mouthful. Um, versus a theory of collapse or a breakdown theory um, for uh, Swampside, uh, Rosa and I, among with our podmates, we read uh, uh, Heinrich Grossman recently. And um, he, his, argument, his argument is basically as follows. And I think I garbled it when I was trying to say it on Swampside, but it, it's something like this. Um, a law of the falling rate of... <laughs> tendential fall in the rate of profit. I'm just going to call it, call it, call it, call it that. If there is a ten tendential fall of the rate of profit, then capitalism will break down. Uh, yep. First premise. Second premise. Marx thought there was a law of the tendential fall of the rate of profit. Okay? And then his conclusion is that, therefore, Marx thought that there would be a breakdown. And so the missing premise here is that Marx thought premise one, right? That Marx thought if there is a law of the falling to fucking rented blah, blah, blah. you know what i mean if there's yeah. the tendential fall in the rate of profit then there will be a breakdown and i actually kind of agree with grossman that if law of the tendential fall of the rate of profit if this is true then capital w will eventually deplete itself beyond its own social reproduction but i, I but i don't know I don't if think that follows i don't, I don't know think if that follows i don't know if marx thought that no, that, that, that I, I think it might be true, but I don't know if this is what Marx thinks. And Kleiman is very. Uh, well, he never said it. So I think if he, if, you know. Well, I, I think don't, if he told it, he said it. That, well, that, it this is the thing. Yeah. It doesn't ha have to really be said that there's an end point to capitalism, and it would make sense that that end point of capitalism would be the result of the, uh, the tendency at the rate of profit to fall like just sort of naturally 
Yeah, yeah, but that, I mean, that, that doesn't stand. I'm going to counterpoint here. If you actually do a philological look at what Marx actually advocated politically in his life, and I know this is this is not directly related to this, none of those assumptions make sense if you if you have a breakdown theory. Because if you had a breakdown theory, the the impossibilist assumptions are coherent. But Marx rejected impossibilism, which is interesting. Be, um, I was thinking about while I was arguing, I was arguing some fraud. Well, fraud. I have to define all this because none of this has is directly related to uh, to what Kleiman's saying. But if you if you actually do a kind of sound philological view of what Marx advocated in other papers, then the idea he was advocating for a final breakdown doesn't make sense because impossibilism is consistent with a breakdown theory. And that's the idea that you don't try to reform anything because it's all going to break down anyway. And socialism by necessity and automaticity will win. And this has been assumed by a lot of class uh, by both Stalinist and Trotskyist. I mean, Mandel was a Trotskyist for a long, long time. But here, so a couple things, first of all, I, I think you're you are right about this, and that that Marx doesn't actually have a like a, a truly a breakdown theory, and that Grossman is potentially wrong about Marx thinking this. Secondly, I I still think that it's that that intuition that uh, falling rate of profit will lead to breakdown. I actually think that's true. Like I think that if if, if this is the case, so so. I appreciate what you're saying, and I appreciate the political import of this. Uh, um, I, yeah, Tommy. Uh, I yeah, mean, me, sorry, go ahead, Rosie. I mean, I mean, yeah, people read break breakdown as necessarily leading to communism, but that doesn't no. necessarily have to be the case. No, like breakdown of capitalism can just lead to a form of like mode of production that's a thousand times worse. Or something yeah. completely beyond, like what we would possibly even think of as like being com. I mean, maybe it would be like a return to like sort of a Soviet model or something like that. But like the concept of like a breakdown doesn't necessitate like this automatic like when capitalism breaks down, it leads right into like communism as we would want it. Yeah. I, there's a lot of stuff I'm bringing that I could bring up here to to make this all more coherent, um, but they're all completely outside of the text, and this text avoids yeah. both philological and uh, political argumentation. But That's I'm going. I'm just going to say that I really don't think that if you see if if you if you yes if you see. LT, if you see the tendency of the rate of the law, of the tendency of the rate of profit, the fall as linear, it, it it would lead to a collapse as to breakdown model. But we've already discussed that it's not linear because there's countervailing tendencies that contradict it in capitalism, and that these would almost be metabolic. So, well, like, like, there's like a there's a long term tendency at the rate of profit to fall, and then these there's these sort of like continuing crisis i think we would when we're talking about a long-term tendency at the rate of profit to fall and breakdown and it we would be focusing on the long-term tendency of the rate of profit to fall he's saying there bringing is about bringing about 
bringing about sort of a final crisis and a breakdown. The long-term tendency is non-linear, so it's not it's not a long-term tendency. Well, there are there are people out there who have literally. I, I think that the guy uh, Esteban Mito, I could be wrong, but I think he is kind of a, a grand uh, collapse theorist of capitalism, and he has done like asymptotic lines. And I think that Michael Roberts might be too, showing that you know the rate Michael of Michael Roberts, even though. Like Michael Roberts' work generally would suggest that there's some kind of breakdown coming, because he believes in a long-term tendency at the rate of profit to fall, and he tracks this through like K waves, sort of. But K waves, K waves are long business cycles too. There's also be a long-term tendency of profitability to renew itself according to those things. Except, yeah. as a as a physicist friend told me, and this is not something Kleiman does. K waves are almost impossible to prove because those waves are consistent with with statistical noise. Yeah. Um, so let let yeah, me just say, let's just say one thing. Can I say one thing? I, I was just yeah. Can I go just on? Fin but he doesn't actually. He argues against collapse explicitly in the the long depression. He argues explicitly against like collapse capitalist. I think we lost Rosa. Rosa? Oh no. I no. guess I guess the last thing I'll say about this is that I think people think that Marx has a breakdown theory because he thinks communism is inevitable. But co Marx thinks communism is inevitable because people are uh, rational and self-interested and he he has faith in them. Oh, Alex is back. We 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 lost you. Uh, we we lost both you and Rosa there. That's good. Yeah, uh, Google Hangouts for you. Like one thing I would say is that you know we look at the Great Depression and we look say the 1970s in England and the rate of profit in England was down to shit and it bounces back up. So there's no, you know, there's always room for capitalists to do things in the system. And the other thing I would say as well is that you know I don't think anybody would assume that capitalism is the is the end of history. You know, not even Fukuyama probably thinks that. And like so the fact that you know, the fact that there's going to be another system post-capitalism does not necessarily mean it's communism. You know, that is a that is a that's a theory. That's not an empirical fact, or it's not something that can be tested. But like, I think we're getting into the weeds here. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Is we are getting uh, into the weeds. We're only discussing the end of the fucking world. Yeah, so it's understandable. Yeah, we all. We all know it's goddamn CO2 and methane anyway. It's the goddamn methane plumes. That's well, it, we it could be an endogenous factor, like, well, you know, endogenous, like to endogenous to the capital, like logical circuit, or it could be these internal tendencies that end up doing the capitalism in. And the real political question is, you know, will the proletariat be ready to t take rational action in time? Anyway. Well, the the only reason I brought I brought up what I brought up was not not these discussions about the end of the world because I actually do think that's somewhat tangential. Um, not that uh, that the counterexamples that um, that Kleiman uses are specifically there. Like you know, Ernest Mandel is one of the better Marxist economists, but he holds this. What I do think Kleiman's right to point out an error, and the politics endorsed by him are consistent with that error so i mean mm -hmm. like that like like in a way 
a lot of people have accused Kleiman of simple economism. And, you know, I'm not going to get into his politics because we, we disagree on, on political matters, but that actually isn't the logical conclusion of what he's saying. Whereas, like, um, the, a kind of linear model would be, and I don't just mean like in the, because yes, you could, the other conclusion of the tendency of right of profit would be something like communization theory, where you argue that it's not possible anymore because of work, because of workers' conditions. And, but, you know, we're just going to all be pole potting it out because of, of climate catastrophe or something. But that's not here either. And while there are ecological and other implications, that's not the, what this text is dealing not what capital in this instance was dealing with. Yeah. So, so like, I do think it's somewhat important to disaggregate these claims because like, why is climate, you know, why, why isn't climate just a Mandalite? And, you know, because these also have, um, these have implications for things that have, that are outside of the immediate purview of the analysis of capitalism and what you think are the political answers to it. And I, I really do think that uh, a lot of people have been uncharitable to, to Kleiman by reading him as advocating something that he isn't because they read him as arguing for a linear decline or a crisis theory. And he explicitly doesn't and was, you know, even in person when I bring this up, that, that'll get him, you know, riled up. He's not, he's not, that's not what he's arguing for. No, he yeah. has tremendous faith in the metabolic kind of renewing spirit of, of crisis. Yes. Um, which is really what Marx thought, and I think maybe a tad optimistic. And and it's also sort of implying that capitalism is in is in in, in a way in 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 a constant crisis. Um, so, um, but it's invincible because yeah. it's it's what what Taleb calls anti fragile, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, pulling from uh, Schumpeter, it it creatively destroys constantly. I mean, like the Austrians actually kind of grok this. Exactly. They thought the answer to it was going to be, you know, that's what the, that's why they were afraid of democracy. <laughs> um, anyway. yeah. I just like to say that Taleb is a is a is a hack. I just I just don't want his name getting passed on my podcast without a critique. <laughs> I, I was reading some of his like his like I don't know life axioms about you know how erudite and smart he is, and he s says stuff like. Never, never take financial advice from, from someone who works for a living. Really, uh, mm. really cool guy. Yep. Um, well, we've finished all of chapter 2.1. We've been on for one hour and 45 minutes already. Do people want to call it uh, a day for this, or do we want to start hitting into chapter 2.2 .2 for a few, for maybe a couple of sub-chapters? Chapter 2.2 .2 kind of required, I mean, like, to be fair, this is the one I was. This is the part I was afraid of because I actually have to do reading outside of the book to make sure that all the current, all the 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 interpretations are presented correctly. <laughs> so that's hard to yeah. do. Yeah, there's there's five little subsections here. Um, so we have the the dual system interpretations, uh, the single system interpretations, the simultaneous versus the temporal valuation. The simultaneous and the physicalism, and, and then we have value form. I think. Right. I think. I think we should perhaps save that for later because if we start that now, especially when we come to value form, uh, I get a feeling that. Oh man. 
we're going to be on this for another four hours. I think Clyman spends the most time on value form. It looks like just glazing over it. Well, well I think that's because complicated things. So no, well, I think that's because he only deals with it in that place because value form is essentially not dealt with at all in this book. Because value form don't have a mathematical theory of dual system or single system or you know a value dual price system. I don't think they get into it from what he says. So he only really deals with the people who are Straffians and you know these Marxian economists that aren't value form. Yeah, i.e., he only deals with people who have a fucking theory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and not and, not a, not left Austrians. Yeah, and exactly. Precisely, which, you know, I wanted to rip into them soon. But um, I think, um, well, well, let's have a look at the chat. Is there, we've got to say shout out to the chat. We've had Michael Johnson. Yeah. Hibaru San. Dionysus eats you. That's you, Derek. Um, Data Lore, Delatera, Council.com. Data Lore. It's a Swampside donor. What's up, Data? Libertarian Lenin and France came back. Yay. Oh, man. C come on this show libertarian Leninists correcting us on on uh ca on basic capital categories and shit we've also had the return of the lib destroyer that's a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a a that's a lot of days yeah thanks i just thought it you know they deserve to get their name right out when it's such a good one we also have the person with the Cyrillic letters from last week, which I actually went and I got the translation into Latin numeral so I could pronounce her name, so I could apologize for last week. The, that's to Kostya Zaszczek. Uh, so, Kostya, sorry for pronouncing your name entirely incorrectly last week. And uh, we've got Cancel.com. So, um, do we, does anybody have anything to say on what we talked about today or just general feelings on what is say the tssi we've that's what basically we've done there is we've said this is this is what the tssi tssi in the two shows so far this is what the tssi is and what it what it thinks marx actually meant does anybody have any issues or or have any positive things to say or just you know just any thoughts in general about it thank you guys for walking me through the math because it's it it is more convincing once you really get down into the nitty gritty of the math. Um, We're only starting, Derek. We're only starting. Yeah, and when you're working through it like that and people object to this school, you, I really feel like the burden is on them to say, why not? This is so intuitively plausible. Like, and people are really reluctant to en engage with what exactly is wrong, which like, I, I've been sent like a, a lot of different critiques and it's, you know, like when I was reading this book, I also, you know, wasn't sure what the stakes were. Right. But, and when I read those critiques, I'm even more unsure of what the stakes are because, you know, I don't know. I don't have a, any stake in, I, I don't have like serious stakes in whether Kleiman's particular interpretation is right. Um, but it, you know, it seems the most like plausible when when you when you like pick things apart at least in the in the way that Kleiman does when he's talking about simultaneous valuation or, or dual single systems that kind of shit that we're gonna get into like next time like yeah I, I 
I feel like the burden of proof is is on the critics because this seems to line up with, with the text so much. And, you know, not that I always agree with Marx, you know, as I pointed out, it seems to be loyal to the text. Well, I also think it's not just loyal to the text. I mean, that's super important, and I think that's fair. But it also is loyal to text with the context of actual real numbers from actual real economic data. It is not all um, hypothetical thought examples. Well, this book, Derek, it doesn't get into any. This book doesn't really get into any empirical stuff. This is just purely theoretical. But you can plug in um, the empirical stuff, and he does in another book, which is why I was thinking about it. Um, okay, yeah, definitely. In in his in his uh, failure of capitalist production, he applies all, all of these things. And... Although I think I'm running the two books in my head right now. So, but yeah, I mean, because you, you the these work, you can work with these with actual real number sets, which is what Kleiman actually did in his day to day life. So, like, it, like if it's not true, we should be able to figure out if it's not true, not just if it comports with the text. Which, yes, this is what this is doing, but it's it's it would be beyond like th that's not merely enough, which was my other thing about logical consistency. Like it's not merely enough to be a, I can imagine two al alternative readings that both completely comport with the text and are logically sound, but both could not be right. Okay. But that, that's an accomplishment by itself, honestly, because Marx is widely thought to be inconsistent, even by Marxists. I, I, I yeah, I, I think the thing as well is, Derek, though, that the, the empirical data lines up so strongly with Marx that the only line of attack is is a logical inconsistency. Yeah, but but uh, Marx, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kleiman later on in, in this book is is going to go through a whole bunch of that evidence and saying why it's why it's bullcrap, uh, just as it did with the um, tendential fall in the rate profit in this chapter where it says it's not a trend um you, you know we shouldn't go go looking in empirical data for rates of profit falling uh what we should be looking for is crises so in in this book he he does not really uh deal that much with the empirical stuff in in fact uh the the empirical stuff he brings up is you know empirical studies that he thinks is of crap because they don't understand the theory that they're testing, right? So that's that's true, and I I think he's definitely right there. But he does in in his own book when he does the you know the empirical data into into the falling rate of profit and stuff like he does apply it empirically there. That's true. Yeah. One Why? thing I'd like. Mm -hmm. Sorry, one thing I'd like to say is that Lexi, have you have you? Uh, I I actually I just received my copy of Stephen Jay Gold's The Structure of Evolutionary Theory there the other day. Oh, have yeah. you? You Me get too. it as well. Okay, yes, have, you start, have you started reading it? I haven't had a chance. I've I've been uh, doing a lot of editing and reading for podcasts. Fair enough. I just like not too much of it now, about 20 pages in. But he he's, he, he has a, a chapter where he, he he's talking about um so he's talking about whether he considers himself, say, like a Darwinian, if you want to put it like that, the equivalent yeah. of like so he, you know, the newer evolutionary theory differs from some of the stuff that Darwin had said or predicted or thought would would work or whatever. I'm only getting into it now. But he was saying that, you know, is what he is. He was trying to talk about whether is what he is uh, close enough structurally to what Darwin had said to call himself like a Darwinian. And, 
you know, he's saying that, yes, because, you know, there are certain mm -hmm. core concepts in there that, you know, while there might be tinkering at the edges that we do consider ourselves to be like, or himself to be like an inheritor of Darwin and, and, uh, and, and, and are certainly a part of that broad, not even broad, but like he considers himself a Darwinian theorist. Now, like the way he describes it, when we go and we look at all the people that we're going to get into now, when we, we get into the next part of the book, who call themselves Marxian economists, mm -hmm. um, like for me, the general broad structure of what they are saying is what they think is correct is so fundamentally different to what would be a Marxist from what would be Marxist analysis as we've understood it so far that I don't see how they can call themselves Marxists. Uh, it the, the most the most generous thing you could put say about them that they would be post-Marxist or just plain Strathians or something. But it's it's interesting. I found it just just when we're doing the two things at the same time. I'm reading Stephen Jay Gold and we're reading this book. And it really struck me that like by Gold's criteria, when he's talking about who's a Darwinian and who's not, like none of these guys would actually you could reasonably say that they're actually Marxist economists, in my opinion. Well, I uh I I read that part in college, so I think I remember what you're talking about. And this is, you know what, this is what I'd say for them, is that, um, so Marxism especially, but also just Marxian thought, right? Like, of course, the economics is the most scientific part in the classical sense of, you know, using mathematics and yada yada. Um, so it seems particularly perverse for someone who thinks of themselves as a Marxist to abandon that part or to think that that part is wrong and continue being in the tradition. But the truth is, is that there is also a theory of history where, um, you know, uh, every society is built on exploitation of some kind. And um, people have tried to, pe some people that accept, okay, maybe Marx was wrong on the math, right? And maybe they're wrong to say that. I think they're wrong to say that. Um, but they still try to conceive of history as a succession of modes of production, uh, 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 exploitative modes of production. Um, so they might not be Marxist economists. You know what I mean? But I still, I would still think of someone like that that's trying to reconceive of exploitation without Marx's labor theory um, as a Marxist because of their broader philosophical and political commitments yeah maybe uh, I mean, yeah, not, I mean, not a marxist economist yeah yeah i was about to bring up like robert brenner like i'm pretty sure he doesn't really believe in the labor theory of value even like a in a ricardian sort of sense or like econophysics sort of sense of like a labor theory of value and like basically he's I would still consider him a Marxist because ultimately he believes class struggle is like the motor of history and like his work as like sort of like political Marxism in general is important in the study of like sort of like Marxist history because he puts a greater emphasis on class struggle than like his peers who may be like more Marxian in the sense that they have a theory of labor value or they stick more closely to like 
Marx's own explanation for like the transition from feudalism into capitalism, which is more market-based than Marx, even Marx's own explanation. But Robert Brenner and like the political Marxists still fit within like that, within like historical materialism as a science because they view class struggle as a central part of history. Yeah, so the analogy to Darwin is often made has always struck me as a little bit specious because Darwin was focusing on a very specific set of problems. And Marx has, Marx is not. I mean, like one of the theological points I do like to remind people about capital is it was supposed to be like one volume in a series that dealt with the entirety of bourgeois society, including political stuff. And the more Marx got rigorous and rigorous into the capital complex, the more he realized he would never get to the other. I mean, that. Yeah, well, I agree, but I, I just mean it like with respect to Marx's economics. That's kind of oh, what yeah. I, I mean. Would you say that's true of like the Mandalites and stuff? I think they are. I mean, like, I think they are. Like, they would. Mandel was a. Mandel would agree with Kleiman on most things. Yeah, I was about to say he, he agreed with Kleiman on most things, except for except for like the linear. I mean, except that Mandel thought there was going to be a final yeah. crisis. Like, yeah. So, yeah, like I don't have I don't have objections to that. I have objections to the people who think that you know that the rate of profit is physical. The rate of profit can't drop. You know what I mean? Value doesn't mean anything. I just find that if you're an economist and you say all of those things with respect to Marxist economists like economics it's you know you're essentially saying the exact opposite i just can't see how you can call yourself a marxist economist yeah, and, and say it, those things right you, know, it's you can say to, a to all historian or whatever yeah sorry you might yeah no no I, i'm sorry i i interrupted you um but yeah uh i mean it's it's insulting to uh marx's economic thought not to sort of do what Kleiman is, is doing and trying to make Marx make sense um, and uh, and just completely discounting or, or disqualifying a priori uh, Marx's uh, rigorous, you know, economic theory that, I mean, to be fair, and I, I and Derek, you said this as, as well, like Marx is not really good at explaining his economic theory. He's more interested in, at least in Capital Volume 1, of laying out the argument and working through, you know, step by step every part of the process, uh, which is, you know, sort of why this book is so great, is that it does it the other way around. Um, but um, I just, I just, uh, I just have one closing, closing remark uh, to sort of tie up what, what um, what I've been thinking about with with this reading, and to hopefully bridge the gap to the next section in in two point two um, about the TSSI. What is it all about? And uh, to those of you um, looking at this on YouTube, it's right there in in table two point two. TSSI. What is it about? It's the temporal single system interpretation. Um, looking at this, it's, it's all right there, man. Um, it's temporal. Why is it temporal? Well, because for this table to make sense, it needs to be determined in a sequence, uh, going from left to right. It's a single system. And why is it a single system? 
Well, because total prices and total values are the same thing. And the total uh, price profit rate and the total value profit rate are the same thing. So, or that we're have the same magnitude. So we can have them in the same matrix uh, and split them up on just on different columns. So it's a single system and it's temporal because it's sequential and time actually matters. And the way you think about these things, the sequence you think about these things matters. And if you do it in this one particular way, it makes total sense. Um, so that's just um, that's just my my uh, my closing remarks on this this whole sort of thing, I guess. Well, I I just spilt a giant glass of water all over my desk, and so I hope <laughs> nobody thought I was urinating or something. The sound effects there, I was struggling violently to try and get my laptop out of the way. So hopefully. Hopefully this is still broadcasting. So everything's just, fine, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did, was, I did actually urinate on the desk. You know, you caught me. I was right, desperate. Oh, been on for two to hours. It has, it has been a moment. Um, I, I guess I'll say one thing about Marx and Darwin because now you got me thinking. Um, I think there there's a parallel here where you have some earlier works that have a broader kind of a uh, view of a thesis. And then you have some later works that draw in on a specific part of the thesis that's relevant to our lives. Um, that is, and those later works are not, <laughs> are, are they more controversial. So in Darwin, you have uh, the origin of species, which is sort of the centerpiece of the Darwinian worldview. And then you have the descent of man. And in the descent of man, you get into the theory of sexual selection. And, th and, and those later Darwinian texts are rejected by some Darwinians, right? But they still uphold the origin of species. Does that make sense? And those people could be fairly thought to be Darwinians, but maybe they're, you know, soft Darwinians. They're not hard Darwinians, right? And I think very much we have the same tendency with Marx. We have the theory of history. We have the communist manifesto, the theory of communist politics, uh, the study of society uh, across time, of uh, modes of production. Um, we have that body of work that forms this broader version of the Marxism. But then we have his later, more specific work to our lives on, on capitalism and his specific theory of the inner workings of it. Um, not yet. Some Marxists do not go with this and maybe they are soft Marxists. And maybe this is the difference between a hard and a soft Marxist. I, I liked it better back in the day when there were, there were Marxists like Gramsci, who I don't say a lot of nice things about, who were actually honest about the fact that they were deviating from Marxist theories in such a profound way that it was almost not the same thing. Um, I have no, I have no problem with that, you know. Um, you know. Sorry, Derek. Yeah, my, my only, my, my, I think my last, uh, my last point is, is I also think just when I, I talk about the political consequences of this, I do think that we could all agree that everything in Kleiman's Reclaiming Marx is true, and that it's perfectly empirically applicable. But that isn't even beside the point in some cases. The logic still holds. And we would still have significant political deviation between us. So I don't want people to think that I think this is like, if we get this, there's going to be one neat trick and it's going to all fix Marxist politics and everything tomorrow. I don't think that's true at all. But I do think there's got to be like some kind of minimum ground on what, what we talk about when we talk about Marxist economics. Otherwise, like 
I mean, I often feel like when I'm discussing this, I'm like, I'm playing tennis without a net. Like, I don't even know. Like I have trouble critiquing people and podcasts and stuff when I, when we talk about Marxist economics, because I don't even know what the assumptions that they're bringing into the situation. Um, because it, there's so many different background theories that you can't necessarily even like, they're not even always using the words the same way. So that's, that's maddening to me. And it's good to like clarify and have a consistent, you know, a consistent logical view. And that's all. Yeah, I think it's really important for us people on the podcast left or whatever we want to call ourselves to, you know, to actually do the work and go through the stuff. And if, you know, and make what uh, a return to actual Marxist economics dominant in, in our in our left for our left analysis, because I think it's very important. Um, I, you know, I think it's up to us to to put forward what we all think is correct and to proselytize for our two. Yeah, I mean the popular the popular quote Marxist podcast unquote are are also you know they don't have they have very different conceptions of of Marxist economics if and this is a big if if they have a conception of Marxist economics at all which most of them don't seem to. Well, they might have conceptions of economics, but those are often not Marxist. The, the thing I, I would say what Derek was saying about Gramsci, I completely agree. Like I, I have no problem in picking holes with what I think is wrong with Marx, but I have big problems in people picking holes of what is right in Marx. And I have no problems with other people having different ideas of different theories in Marx. The more the merrier. But like, you know, my old thing is like, I think Marx is right. And I think we've got to show who's right. That's the way I, I, I'm coming at it. Um, Woo! Yeah. So um, I think we'll wrap it up, guys. Let's see. Is there any more comments in the chat? Could we, uh... you, I, I would really like to hear Alex's uh, closing closing remarks. And you know, just yes. Say... Uh, sure. Well, it's it's nearly five a.m., so I'm not sure <laughs> if I can trust myself to um, uh, provide a cogent uh, summary. But um, I, I think uh, yeah. So a couple of years ago, I attended a lecture by uh, Bill Mitchell. I think you've actually had him. On your podcast, Tom, the the MMT guy, yeah, and I um I, I went up to him um after the talk, and I, I was quite young at the time, and um I asked stupid naive question, you know, is there any uh, relationship between MMT and Marx's value theory? And his response was, well, value theory is flawed. There's no transformation of prices uh, uh, into values or vice versa, and that was just the end of the story. I was just shot down instantly, and having having gone through this text, I feel better equipped to to respond to that and just not just uh, not just accept that received wisdom. Yeah, like I think anybody on the any of the major people on MMT, they're all post Keynesian and they all are explicitly non Marxists, you know, mm. and you know. You know, Steve Queen is equally a withering and is equally as inaccurate in his stuff. Look, I don't have any problems with, say, a post-Keynesian, some of them saying that, you know, when they don't know all the ins and outs of the TSSI and all that stuff going on, because they were brought but, but, up but being taught one thing. But, but if you call yourself but, a Marxist, you should be able to speak about these debates and, and put this, uh, this theory forward. Yes, absolutely. I, I think so. You know, like I was just looking today and I came across a video, you know, they had um, Novara Media, Media interviewing David Harvey and it's got like 50,000 views. 
And I'm like mm. thinking, you know, David Harvey, his, his new book that's coming out apparently is supposed to be how Marx didn't have a labor theory of value. You know, yeah. that's what we're up it's, against. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so much um, noise out there. And no, I think this is an important work to go through and, and, and get right. Hard to argue when the with the the biggest Marxist economist are Richard Wolff, who I'm not, who I I'm, don't feel as inclined to speak about, but David Harvey, who's not an economist, yeah, at all, well, yeah. not even a little bit. He's a geographer, so he's not well, even he's not even coherent. I went to talk of his. I went I went to Coventry. You know, I went on the train, went a hundred miles in the train to go to listen to a lecture of his, and I was only getting into Marx at the time, and his his talk was entirely incoherent. You know, so it was kind of shocking to me. He was, you know, I, I don't know, talking about Bitcoin or something kind of insane. So, you know, it's strange how you how you can teach Marx's capital for 40 years, having read it through it um, sentence by sentence hundreds of times and still not get it. But I think he got, I think they get it, but I think they that they were like he a lot of the Marxists aren't able to compete on um they are not able to compete on the mathematics of it. So they just they just go with the flow of what's the dominant school. But, but like Harvey, I think that is a lot of it. Yeah, sure, but like uh, Harvey see, works in an academic institution, he could get someone to check the math. Yeah, and, and, and also like the th the maths are in the text, man. Like the he says in text, you know, total values equal total prices. He says in text, you know, the average rate of profit and the general rate of profit uh, tend to equalize or or are equal to each other. He says all these things in text, and like David Harvey will. Uh, all right, this, I'm going off on a tantrum here, but like. Harvey will textually contradict Marx. So this is this is why I like there's there's no I'm not sure I'm 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 buying this whole well they read the text and they understood the text but they they're just bad at math. They can't be. Both can't be true. Like if you understand the text and you understand the argument then you know um all of this other stuff make sense and follow directly from that. I, I just don't see how you can how you can read Marx closely and carefully and say the things that David Har that David Harvey says. Um I I just can't square it. It's but maybe I I I'm not, you know, maybe I don't have the imagination or something of, of David Harvey, but I'm I'm just at a loss there. <laughs> you don't have the lovely Gandalf beard well, guys, will we, uh, guys and people, everybody, can we say uh, we've we'll, we'll give it a rest for tonight, and we'll reconvene hopefully next week at the same time. Yay! Works for me. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. We're going to. I think next week we'll try and get all through the rest of chapter two, and maybe into some of chapter three. Like I did think we might get all of chapter two done today, but. You know, I think it's good to take as long as it needs. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so uh, thanks everybody for coming on, and thanks everybody in the chat. And um, Lexi, if somebody wants to be in included in our mailing list on Facebook, 
Should they uh, friend you, perhaps? And you can add them? Should we make like a page for this? Because this is, a, you know, going to be a multi-week project. It's going to be, it's an interesting thing, you know? Like, like, a, like a Facebook page? Yeah, just for whatever this is. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah good idea. Let's do and that. So, and yeah. people could like that, and uh, that'll be their little update station. Okay, that's a great idea. Awesome. Let's do that. All right, great. Okay, everybody, thanks very much. We're going to go off air, and then we can chat a little bit more if you want to for a few minutes. Okay, so thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks, everybody, for joining in.